When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. Also, typically we're joined by co-host Hugh Sign, but he's off in Glasgow at the Rush Convention, where he's like some big, important speaker for all the Rush fans. So in his place, we are graced by the one and only Dave Linquist, longtime music writer for the Indianapolis Star, now Indianapolis Business Journal, legend in Indiana and dear friend to both Dane and myself and now Jody, of course. So uh, also welcome Dave Lindquist. Thank you, Andy. Our guest today on Music Buzz podcast is legendary musician Jody Stevens, who first came to the attention of music fans in the early 70s as the drummer for the legendary Memphis pop band Big Star. Over the years, he has also worked and been a part of many other bands and projects, including Golden Smog, worked alongside Luther Russell, and the band Those Pretty Wrongs, where Jody is the singer and songwriter, actually. Jody and Luther are the songwriters. Stevens has also helped manage Ardent Studios uh, since the late 1980s, which we'll get into. So welcome to the Music Buzz, Jody Stevens. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We're glad you're here, Jody. And first off, thanks for the great hang and Southern hospitality in Memphis last week. I, tru- I truly appreciate you showing me around, man. Uh, that was really a blast for me. I love that you've got to see this massive renovation here at Arden, kind of in progress, but far enough along to 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 be impressive and and to understand the the scope of the renovation and how cool it's going to look. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it fully updated and and also to seeing those pretty wrongs a gig next time I'm in Memphis, man. I want to see you guys play live. And uh, okay, attention, Music Buzz followers. Jody's latest album with cohort Luther Russell, the band Those Pretty Wrongs, the album Holiday Camp, is mandatory listening. All right. Mojo Magazine, which I got oddly the day I got after you and I hung out, I got my mojo and there you were. It described your record as an inviting blend of jeweled guitars, fragile optimism, and wraparound harmonies. And to me, it's ex- as exhilarating in its own way as number one record and Radio City uh, by Big Star. So, and man, your lyrical sensibilities transcend any genre or time frame. And I just want to talk about this record. Let's start with that. Let's start with the first song, New September song. And I know you guys have listened to this record too, but what a great kickoff song, man. Very nice. <laughs> it's irresistible. I mean, I listen, I've listened to that. I mean, I love the whole record, but I've listened to that a lot. It it makes me smile like an old favorite song does. You know, I, fi- I feel like it's a modern classic. I, I need to interject because Dane smiling is is newsworthy. Just just yeah, so I don't clear. like yeah. I don't like music anymore, mm-hmm. but I love this. <laughs> I hate music most of the time. But man, this record just makes you feel good and it makes you think. 
a killer, killer song, man. You guys, the way you guys sing together, you and Luther is just beautiful. I don't know how, if that's, I mean, it's a blend. So it just works. You can't, you can't make that happen. You know, a blend is a blend. It's got to be natural. And it sure is, you know, on this whole record. We're lucky that from the onset, when we just got together to sing some big star songs for the, uh, for the uh, screening of Big Stars, uh, Nothing Can Hurt Me, the, the documentary that Dan, Danielle McCarthy did, uh, that worked. And Luther kind of uh, pointed that out and said, why don't we write some songs? And so now this is our third album. So we, we have some time and experience under our belts and, and some travel as well, which helps. Uh, some live performing. So, But I can't, uh, I can't thank you enough for those compliments. Wow. Well, and I'm just going to keep going here. Uh, the second tune, Ride Along, it's a more spare song. It actually sounds like it could have been at the end of uh, side two of number one record. It, the layered vocals are perfect on that. I love the And your lyrics on here are great. Message in a bottle that wasn't quite watertight. That's nice. That's kind of my life sometimes. It's like, oh, okay, great. Uh, I love that. <laughs> You know, I got to admit, the police's message in a bottle kind of popped up because it was about couldn't wait, you know, and, and uh, couldn't wait to turn out the lights and uh, or, or message in a bottle that wasn't quite watertight. I, you have this input from listening to music and your surroundings for, for now for me for 70 years. And, and uh, somehow it just comes out in lyrical form. Once you start sort of thinking about it in, the, in, the, in that regard. Well, it's an awesome tune, man. Um, and then the third tune, I believe, Paper Cup. Okay. And Dave has already said that he wants to play that on his show. My heart is a paper cup. Fill it up. Don't tear it up. Tr- I love the line. Try to keep myself on the other side of the thorny side of you. <laughs> that's a great line, too, man. It's a great arrangement. Yeah, that's courtesy of Luther. Yeah. Very yeah, good. Luther comes up with these brilliant arrangements. He contribute contributes a little bit to lyrics as well, but brilliant arrangements on his part. Well, and the drumming, the minimalist drumming that you do on that is perfect. You know, you're playing the song. So zack, gack, gack, gack. Sometimes that's what the song needs, right? Yeah, you play to the song. Yeah, there's a lot of drummers that are afraid to just do that. And but it's perfect. I love it. It's absolutely great. So I'm just saying, you know, our listeners got it. They've got to get this record. It's great. And I don't like anything, as I've already said. Uh, Scream. (laughs) (laughs) Scream sounds like this may sound weird, but a classic Graham Gouldman song, like the stuff he wrote for like Bus Stop and For Your Love back in the 60s. Those minor key, beautiful melody things, super catchy melody. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, again, you know, Luther's arrangements and the backdrop and uh, but Scream, it just, you know, there's a Jimmy Stewart movie that uh, uh, you can't take it with you. And uh, he stars with uh, Lionel Barrymore and Gene Arthur. And, and there's a whole scene at a table with with Jimmy Stewart and Gene Arthur. And it's about Jimmy Stewart feeling like he's going to scream. And then it just builds up, and and uh, at the end of it, Gene Arthur winds up screaming because she thinks he's going to scream. But I just I, that's kind of what it kicked it off, and I thought, you know, it'd be nice to make it a little dark. So I, I read some Edgar Allan Poe, and uh, and added that dark side of midnight tapping at the door and stuff. Classic stuff. And my favorite song is "This Painted Sky." Uh, stunning lyrics but the chorus do you do you know the lyrics to the chorus offhand that you could just recite those i didn't write them down because it was long but man it's so good uh, the shadows are out tonight don't be afraid if they tag along moon so bright i can see your eyes let's play out a blanket and watch it rise well dance and sing on this windy night silhouettes by the spectral light eliminate moon amidst the sparkling of galaxies and celestial queens we'll wake tomorrow and fight the fight in the revelations of broad daylight, we'll fan the forces of changing winds that carry us to grace again. Okay, how about that? Really, I just got chills again, like I did, like I did when I heard it the first time. Very good stuff, man. I don't know. You know, it's like, well, you know, you're a songwriter and drummer. How do you come up with this? It just kind of comes. It, it just, it just kind of comes. And if you give it a little space and time and quietness, it comes. And and you know, it's. And you know that all too well. Always the rainbow. 
another power pop killer. I'm grateful for the laughter and the pain that it destroys. That's really a great line. It is. And, and I think Luther wrote that line. Uh, well, I, God I wrote, bless Luther too, man. That's I tell you, it's kind of, it's, we complement each other so well. Because I'll come up with, with the line and, and the way he finishes it can, can make it something that, that has an impact. When did you realize that with Luther? When did you realize, gosh, we're, he's the perfect guy to write songs uh, with? The first song we wrote together. Really? Tell us about yeah. that. May have been Lucky Guy. Because uh, I had a couple. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I would sing songs into, uh, you know, I'd, I'd tell Luther, hey, I'm going to call you with the melody line and some lyrics and stuff. And so don't pick up. And I just leave it on his voicemail. And uh, then, so the first time he sent back chords and, and arrangements and stuff, I thought, wow, it's, it's Christmas in whatever month it was. You know, it just, what a gift to, to have hooked up with someone like Luther and, and who would nail it um, and just make it exciting. So you guys, do, do the songs normally start with you have a the genesis of it and you send it his way and he works on it and sends it back? Or does it go the other way sometimes? Well, it goes the other way sometimes. I, I, in an email, he, he, uh, there was a, I think he was calling it September song, but he was, knew was an adjective. So I just started writing lyrics and he probably had chords too, I think. I started writing lyrics and. And uh, and just I got I got the verses down and uh, and I got pretty excited about the verses. And, and I thought, man, this new September song is coming along. But there's the chorus. And, you know, and then Luther would kind of did a little arrangement of that for the chorus. And uh, yeah, it uh, it just it just works. I start a sentence and he finishes it or he starts the sentence and I finish it. That's the way truly great writing relationships work like that, man. So God, God bless you guys. Don't, this, I know it's your third one, but I'm going to expect one about every year or so. So let's get, <laughs> you guys better get on the stick now. You got to start recording. You know, as soon as Arden's ready to go, you're going to hit those Ludwig drums again, man. Yeah. Well, we, we have another one. So we, we kind of broke the ice on that, on that, uh, on our fourth LP. So but excited to be talking. Yeah. I have these kind of opportunities to talk with you. And, and it, uh, I don't know. We're, we're, you know, we're just lucky guys. Since I'm jumping in as Hughes uh, proxy today, I have an art direction question that also kind of relates to those pretty wrongs. Uh, the cover photo on radio city always has been uh, pretty mystical to me. It's a photograph of a naked light bulb hanging from the ceiling with some dubious wiring around and I always wondered, like, okay, does that convey the big star aesthetic of anything can be beautiful? And then I was extrapolating that to, oh, here's a song, Paper Cup, on your new record that also is taking something that is discarded in most cases, and you're making it uh, your heart. Wow. What an analogy. What a great way to uh, uh, build. Uh, kind of after that, and it really didn't have anything to do with the big star cover. You know, the Museum of Modern Art and uh, in New York bought that pay that uh, photograph. Yeah, he's super famous guy. Yeah, he was doing dye transfers then, and uh, so yeah, Alex was thumbing through his collection of photographs and and landed on that one, and you know, Alex picked it out for the cover. And I think it just, I just think it made some sort of artistic statement to Alex and it could very well have been, you know, what you're describing. And it's, it's all in your perspective on things. And, uh, you know, Alex had this brilliant perspective on things. So those two match up. I don't know what Alex was really thinking, but, you know, I can, I can speculate. Wasn't that cover almost banned because didn't it have the Kama Sutra uh, on there and people going, oh man, you can't put that out. Well, I don't know about that. I know that when my mom sent it out to relatives back in the seventies, she would she would take the, uh, um, you know, not for resale, whatever that sticker is that they put on. Right? They usually punch a record, promotional mm -hmm. use only, mm -hmm. not for resale. 
Well, she would take that sticker and then put it over the Kama Sutra, like the Kama Sutra poster, <laughs> which is tenant to relatives. That's didn't great. want the relatives seeing that. What kind of band is your boy in, you know? Just the poster <laughs> right. in the corner? That's what we're talking yeah. about? Times have changed. And this has nothing to do with the album other than I went and visited a friend of mine at uh, MTV some years ago. And we got up on the second floor. It's Times Square. And they have all those windows. And I looked out and there was a clock. And it was a uh, oh, a watch brand. I can't think of it at the time, but it was a watch brand. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm seeing these bunnies at each point in time, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And then I noticed that they're all Kama Sutra poses. And this is in Times Square. <laughs> oh, wow. That, you can imagine how many people, you know, just look <laughs> up and it's bunnies on a watch. Like, like car wrecks. Oh, a shit. clock face. <laughs> well, right. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, that poster kind of sneaks in there in the bottom right-hand corner. To kind of dovetail off of that a little bit when talking artwork, how much involvement over your career have you had in the artwork? Bands you're in, the stuff you do yourself, or bands you're working with out of the studio, how much of that have you gotten into? You know, I wasn't really involved other than saying, oh, that looks pretty awesome because the ideas were great. I mean, uh, uh, Carol Manning, Ron Picard designed uh, uh, that neon star for us. And uh, then Carol Manning took the photograph. And I thought that was pretty brilliant. Um, and then the back photo, actually three different photographers, Michael O'Brien, John Fry, oh, Carol Manning took photos of us. And that's the window seat, window box seat at Alex's parents' house. Mm. And the one we wound up using was John Fry's. And, I, you know, I, I thought that was a great photograph. In Radio City, you know, I saw that photograph and it's so striking and stunning. You just, uh, it would make me want to pick up the record. And then the back photo was a, another one by William Eggleston. And uh, it just, I, I just loved the kind of movement or action in the photograph with Gabe. The, it was rock and roll night. It, it, you guys were whooping it up. <laughs> it looks like you guys were whooping it up pretty good. And the third album, you know, it was never really, it was never released by Ardent. It was uh, released in the UK. So we never had a, a proper cover designed for it. And people would just stick covers on it. But at any rate, I just kind of went along with, with the guidance from Chris, probably for the first and Alex and for the second. But those pretty wrongs, you know, Luther's been the artist for all our covers. Right. Uh, front and back. And he just kind of nails who we are and the personality of the band and the kind of whimsical pictures he draws. So it's been easy for me. I just, somebody hands me something and, I, and I'm just super impressed and we run with it. Yeah, you've always gotten good stuff, man. All those covers, classics. Even the ones that whoever came up with the sister lovers. and I mean, I've seen a bunch of different covers for the third record. You yeah, know? there's one on, on a single, and it's a it's a girl woman draped in a Tennessee flag. And that was the one from our records. And that was okay. I mean, it wasn't, I picked that particular one for myself. And then there's one that, uh, two different pictures that they put together one of Alex and one of myself. And I like that one because the, the shots are just cool. I think they're Michael O'Brien pictures. There's a German one. That's kind of interesting. People are, are already familiar with the music. So by the time they see those covers, you know, I think the music shapes the way they see those covers. So it doesn't really matter. Well, I'm trying to think, I mean, I had, I had a European version that must've come out in 78 or 79 whenever it was released over there. But I think the recent ones when Ryko was Ryko that redid everything about 30 years ago, right? It did all the yeah. big star records and Chris's I, I am the cosmos too. So I have all those. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember what that cover looks like. I guess that's the, have they been reissued since then? Or were those, was that the last time? Omnivores <laughs> reissued the third, third album in various forms, uh, kind of the complete third, I guess maybe with, with outtakes and or or recordings that were used. I think Alex cut Kangaroo on a on a an acoustic guitar and just did a vocal and that it has that and he handed it to Jim Dickinson and said, Hey produce this Mr. Producer. And Jim, I think, <laughs> added added all the guitars and the feedback and the drums that are wacky and 
Yeah, it's dark. Uh, and just kind of made it into that kind of dark, I don't know, reckless sort of recording. No question. That's that's the wild thing about Big Star is the first record was the pristine. It should have been a number one record. Not that all of them shouldn't have, but I mean, perfectly recorded, you know, sonically gorgeous. The second one was slightly more ramshackle, if you will, but ju- just a little looser, a little looser around the edges, but still gorgeous. But the third one, the ramshackle really kind of took over a little bit more. And, the you know, there was the, the darkness about it. Can you tell us how, you know, how that happened, how how the band went from the original, which is really Chris's band at first, right? Even Alex says, you know, I joined this band that was Chris's band. And, and then when Chris left, it uh, he didn't actually at that point, he we all thought the band was done after the first. Record. And then John. King, yeah. And then John King was putting together this rock writers convention here in Memphis. Yeah. Tell us about that. If, if you guys don't know this story, this is a pretty that was like a one time in history deal. It's the 50th anniversary is on Memorial Day weekend. No kidding. Wow. Well, it was John King's idea. And John uh, was one of the founders of Arden, along with John Fry, of course, and Fred Smith, who founded Federal Express a few years later. Uh, but John was a big, big, big way into radio and way into hits, as he would say. And, and uh, But also writing. And he put this, he had good intentions, but certainly promoting records was at the top of that. But outside of that, he thought, Rock writers needed to to unite and for better pay and better representation. So uh, he, he set about putting together a rock writers convention and he got Al Bell at Stacks to pay for it. And they flew in over 100 rock writers. I mean, I, I put them up and, and, you know, wined and dined them. And, and uh, it was just, you know, one big weekend. Well, Dave, you 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 live in the wrong wrong decade, Dave. Apparently, they're not they're not yeah. flying you guys yeah, anymore. Cameron Crowe and Lester Bangs. Yeah, and, Cameron Crowe and Lester Bangs were there. Yeah, yeah. yeah Bud Scapa was there. Bud Scapa, uh, Richard Meltzer. Yeah, Richard Meltzer. <laughs> that was wild. Wasn't he the one that got who introduced you guys? Who was really was that Meltzer that was really popped and that introduced? Was Meltzer. Everybody was kind of plied, and and uh, it was the first. It was really the only audience we ever played to that were all big star fans. And for me, doing that was kind of an afterthought. Oh, gee, these writers, writers want us to play, so we'll get together and play. And, and, but I thought the primary push were, was on, going to be on two other bands that were on the bill. And uh, so I just thought, well, we'll have fun with it. And we got to get back together and, and, you know, apparently rehearsed a little bit and played the show and, they just went nuts. They were singing the lyrics. They were having a good time. We were having a good time because of it. I don't know. And it's what it was the catalyst to getting us back together and doing Radio City. So, yeah. Thank God for John King. Oh, no question. Because that record, I, I, later on, I'm going to go, actually, I'm going to start it now. Uh, Dane's top five Jody Stevens drum tracks. I'm going to hop right in because the very first song on that second record is probably my favorite guitar drum groove thing, symbiotic thing that has ever happened. Oh, my soul. If you can't feel the groove on that and dig that, then you don't like music. Uh, It's a a, a quintessential song, man. Uh, And the Mellotron part that comes in is so odd. It's perfect. And Andy Hummel, when you go into that double time part and he starts playing with your kick and you can tell you guys worked that part out, but some of it's so I'm here's what I'm going to say about your drumming on that song. And the arrangement of the whole tune is unbelievable. But I say Bonham's strength, Keith Moon fills and Ringo swing. One of the coolest drum tracks of all time, man. I love that. And tell me how, so that song, how rehearsed was that? Because Alex is kicking ass on guitar. That's a fantastic guitar part. And it's really simple. And, it, but it's like, it's as good as it's like, uh, it's like a funk who or something, what you guys are doing. It was definitely rehearsed. You know, the, the, his intro, it's kind of like September Girl. It's, just, it's a call to stand up, and it's this spontaneous bit of energy that you can't deny. And and that's 
definitely influenced the way I played it. And it always did. Alex, guitars always influenced the way I played. And then, you know, he tried to lock in with a bass player and stuff second. But definitely the energy from the guitarist and certainly the energy from the vocalist. But it was, I've, I've heard different versions of that. And, uh, which kind of reminded me how the song evolved. The, the basic feel was there, but it was just getting the feels, uh, right for me. And, uh, well, you got them right. You know, how they kind of move through the song. Well, that, thank you, Dave. That's a huge compliment coming from you. How, back of a car is probably my second or third favorite song you guys did. I love the chord progression so ahead of its time and never really heard anything like it. You talk about a good groove and great fills. Very nice. Killer drumming on that sucker. How about, was that a song that Chris had something to do with? Cause it sure sounds like it did. It is. And it's also a song that uh, I heard Alex in an interview that Andy Hummel wrote a good bit of the lyrics for. That would make sense because there's a certain innocence, you know, that you hear in Way Out West and India song that you also hear in Back of a Call. So that would make sense. I got to admit, the other, the, the thing about, it's not only Andy's bass playing in this part, which are so important, unique to him and, 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 and incredibly important in how the song feels, but Certainly Alex's guitar parts and the energy coming from there. And it's also John Fry and, and sonically the way everything sounds, drums, bass, guitar, that uh, just sparkles and, and just it sparks this energy that I think we all kind of make good use of. Yeah, it's it feels and sounds fantastic, you know, 50 years later. You can't say that about a lot of stuff. One of my favorite songs that it's not really a big star song, but it's I Am The Cosmos. It's it, it's in the family. I actually like the version that you played on live at Columbia in 93. It's just nice to hear Jody on one of my favorite songs instead of not Jody on the original. Right. I'm sorry. What song was that? My my phone. I Am The Cosmos, the live version that you did at the, on the Columbia 93 record. It's more solid than the original was, I thought. I don't know. Richard Roseborough, powerful, and, and and he had this added kind of this profound feel to Chris's stuff that made it even darker. I think. Well, I th yeah, I think that the live record that we did in '93, uh, live at the University of Missouri or whatever it is, I seem to get it wrong every time I say it. But uh, yeah, I like that. Jim Rondinelli did a great job of, of recording that. He did. You sound great on it. It just—it was just cool to hear it under the banner of Big Star and not Chris Bell. The original's great. I love it, but I like Jody playing on it better. So there you go. That's just me. The the other three songs I was going to mention or two. I don't, I, I said five, but I think I've got six. Um, just your your playing on everything that you guys did, but September Girls because the song's perfect, and the fills that you do before verse three. Come on now, that's. Fantastic. I was going to write them out and kind of bang them on the desk, but I decided not to go that far. But, uh, <laughs> but I dig it, man. It's, it's just classic. When My Baby's Beside Me, another one of my favorite songs with the snare popping on all fours. Come on now. Uh, great conceptual playing. And The Ballad of El Gudo, is there a better song than that? I'm not sure. And, and on that, yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, is there a better song? I don't think so. If anybody ever asked what one song I would pick that best reflects the band, that would be it, I think. Jim Dickinson said, Jody plays like Ringo if Ringo had been born in Memphis. I like that quote. That's good. Boy, he, Jim Dickinson was a quotable guy, I'm telling you. Jody, is it uh, correct that you first knew Andy? Then he and Chris recruited you? My brother, Jimmy, played in a band with Andy. I, you know, it was 66, and then... Uh, I, I didn't, and I would hang out with Andy uh, via a mutual friend, Mike Fleming, uh, from time to time. But, uh, you know, went for a few years without seeing him. And he came to a, one of the uh, Memphis State, I, I played drums in the Memphis State production of Hair. I was, I was still in high school, but uh, my brother and I were in a band and we auditioned and we passed the audition. And so we, but, but at any rate, Andy came to see that show, said, hey, I'm jamming with some friends. You want to come along? And I said, sure, sounds great. And went over and it was Chris Bell's back house and 
uh, probably Terry Manning was there, and I think uh, Tom Eubanks and Steve Ray, along with Chris and Andy. They paid down to the three of us. What were your first impressions of Chris? Interesting. Uh, introspective, um, a bit guarded. I Because uh, I have another kind of memory of, of it could have been the first time I met Chris, but it was outside and uh, Andy introduced me or we said hello. And then Chris immediately pulled Andy about 10 feet away to talk to him about something. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. You know, we all kind of warmed up to each other pretty quickly. May I ask about the division of labor on number one record? Was it like clearly like these were Chris songs, these were Alex songs, or did they collaborate in the original Leonard McCartney way, or is it more of the later Leonard McCartney way? I got to tell you, I, I, I think it was more they would bring a song in and uh, the other would kind of help finish it but you know i gotta tell you i've I've heard alex make certain comments about well yeah i I wrote that song and then but we had this arrangement to uh to you know to give give co-writers and that sort of thing it'd be interesting to see the division because it just says bell bill chilton but it'd be interesting to see the the bmi or the publishing company split whether it's 50 50 or whether one gets you know a much larger percentage because they, they wrote most of the song or, but that's, yeah. Be interesting to check that out. And I got one more that I've just wondered about forever. I mean, I'm, I'm probably a conspiracy theorist on this one. Teenage Alex Chilton had a gravel voice that made him sound much older than he was. Apparently. Did he ever talk about, Oh, I used to sing this way. And now I, as a, as an adult, I sing in a very, different way oh the the story i've heard is that yeah dan penn produced it and uh he was imitating dan penn uh and how dan penn would deliver it we're talking about the letter yeah the original and that just kind of set the tone i think for the way he delivered box tops songs and you know again it was it was uh, dan penn's influence on him which was cool if i got you know but then uh i they just sang in his alex voice for a big star, which was sweet and melancholy. Yeah, I was surprised when I found out that that was the same dude singing in both (laughs) bands. It was like, really? (laughs) And then you got that real clean, Hmm. almost uh, McGuinn with a little better pitch kind of a sound. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it worked. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your history with Arden Studios. Gosh, you know, you would look at that website and uh, looking at all the great records that have been made there over the years. And it's like, I have that. I have that. I remember listening to that in my sister's room. I remember listening to that in the car, in my first truck. It's like, there's some seriously badass records that were made at that studio. Just talk to us about your history with that studio and and um, just kind of, I got to, it seems like if these walls could talk type of a place for sure. I, my history with Arden started, you know, with, with Andy and, and Chris and, and introducing me to John Fry. That was probably March of 1970. And uh, we were at the nas- national location. You know, John actually recorded bands at his parents' house for six years, six or seven from when he was 14 to about when he was 20 or 21. And parents sold the house. He rented the space on National, and that's where uh, Isaac Hayes cut Hot Buttered Soul, and, and Jimmy Page came, and he mixed uh, uh, Led Zeppelin Three with Terry Manning. I think they did some overdubs on that as well. Uh, James Taylor came from Horn Over to Memphis, Horn Overdubs, and all the Tony Joe White and, and uh, the stacks, Terry would mix the uh, the staple singer songs and maybe do an overdub. Of course, they were tracked with the Swampers and Muscle Shoals. Um, we did a lot of work for that. Every major artist except for Otis Redding, um, we were involved with in some form or fashion. Um, um, so I, you know, we John gave us keys to the studio, and uh, uh, he, had, he had given some instruction on recording to 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 Chris and Andy, and I don't know about Alex, uh, but everybody, Steve Ray, you know, John would uh, was was training a lot of folks to engineer because he didn't really particularly want to be there twenty four hours a day. We we were all pretty responsible kids. 
at least up to a point. But uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, Ardent Stack started growing like crazy. So uh, John uh, bought this land just west of Overton Square in Memphis and and built uh, where we are now uh, from scratch. And uh, we moved in here in November of 71. Um, so, and then, you know, it's, it, my association with Arden would certainly be a big star and, and uh, that and um, John, I, I needed a job. So I, I was day guy for a while, I'd stuff envelopes and run errands over to stacks and, and, uh, and all that sort of thing. But, you know, once Alex and I broke up, uh, probably early 75, I did, I, I was going to school on and off and I, I went back to school and kind of continued that and worked. I always worked uh, different things, waiting tables for a while, which I loved doing uh, just down the street in Overton Square. And, and uh, they got back together in, in probably somewhere around November of uh 86, I called John and said, hey, John, do you mind if I use you as a reference on a resume? And he said, no. He said, I'll say some good things about you. And and then I think he called me back pretty shortly after that and said, wait a minute, we're creating a position here. Uh, we want to start a production company. We want somebody to, to travel and wave the flag for the studios and let people know what we're doing and the talent we have here. So I, I uh interviewed with a guy named Joe Dyer two or three times. And I think maybe over the objection of Joe Dyer, uh, John Fry hired. That was in 86. That was, in, that was in January of 87 that I started. Yeah. January yeah. 12, I think. So I've been here since 87 and I, I, I didn't think the job would last because it was just kind of too good to be true. Really. I even at one point went back to school in 93 thinking I'd, I'd better have something to fall back on. I'm looking at the website for Arden from 87. There's Joe Walsh replacements, uh, Al Green, fabulous Thunderbirds. And you go into 88 with REM, Green, Steve Earl, Copperhead Road, George Thorogood, Born to be Bad. You know, throwing out some of those names and titles and stuff. Uh, so you played a... Yeah, what what kind of a hand were you? Was that part of what you were pitching? Is trying to get those acts to come in, or yeah, and uh, the replacements were here when I started. I think they began in like November, December of '86, and then continued a little bit into '87 with Jim Dickinson producing "Please to Meet Me," which is a brilliant record. The only reason I was I was a part of their being here was because the big star of course and and uh jim dickinson produced our third album and, and so they brought jim dickinson in to, to do please to meet me and jim was uh jim loved john fry and uh loved john hampton and joe hardy and uh so of course he did the record here and that was brilliant but um you know the first year i just kind of getting my feet wet and getting doors open at record labels to pitch stuff. And that was really, I, I, the first act I had to pitch was John Kilzer and, uh, made the rounds, New York, LA, a and R departments and, and wound up placing, uh, Kilzer with Geffen with, uh, Tom Zutat and Teresa Infinite at Geffen. And that opened the door to Steve Earl because Teresa was married to Steve. Steve was looking for a place outside of Nashville to do a rock record. Mm. And Steve was, I think, was taken with Joe Hardy, working with ZZ Top at that time, mm. um, by that time. So it, it all kind of works. And then REM, I was just in Nashville in 87 and saw that they were recording at a studio there. And I knew Peter and Mike had said some nice things about Big Star. So I called, left a message. Peter called me back. We had lunch and uh, went over to meet the other guys. And that, so they brought, uh, they came in 88 and did green here. And then that certainly. That was, that was a good lunch, Jody. That was a very, <laughs> very, I don't know. I don't know where you ate or how much you spent, but it was worth every bit of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, uh, and then it kind of worked into a nice relationship with Mike Mills and, and doing these big star third live shows that were Chris Amy's, you know, brilliant idea. And now we're doing number one record live and, just some amazing relationships out of that. And then, you know, I continued to do Tora Tora. We had a place Tora Tora with A&M and, 
And uh, Skillet, I think, was the last. And I played Skillet with um, Atlantic Records with Andy Carp there. And that was probably the the biggest of, of those acts because they went on, wound up to be a wound up being a platinum act and for Atlantic and I don't know. It it worked and I had a really good time. Tell us about when Big Star got back together. That was kind of an unexpected deal, like twenty years later, right? It was. I got a call from Mike Mulvihill and uh Jeff Breeze and about their playing their spring break and, and uh just doing some big star silence with Alex and I agreed and Somehow they found Alex's number, called Alex, and Alex said, well, you know, I'm not doing anything that day. So he agreed. <laughs> and uh, son of a gun, Bud Scapa, who was at the Rock Writers Convention, uh, heard about it and was working A&R at Zoo Records. And he and Jim Rondinelli, a producer-engineer, uh, got together, and uh, we wound up signing with Zoo, and Jim you know, engineered the live recordings and, and produced them and mixed them. And so we were kind of off and running uh, with that. Just, I, yeah, I, Jeff and Mike Mulvihill, it, it, I, I left the ball in, in their court to, to fill out the lineup with two more guys. And uh, they made a few phone calls and everybody that they contacted were big. And I'd met, John Allen, Ken Stringfellow through Gary Gers, same guy that introduced me to Luther Russell. And uh, so I said, hey, call these guys. And I gave them John Allen's number. And so John and Ken joined in. And that, you know, you get lucky. And John and Ken were available. And, and uh, they had done recordings of Cosmos. And I think they did In the Street in Cosmos or Feel. And it, but they were such brilliant uh, covers of the songs. I thought they'd be just the perfect duo, and and they indeed were. And that lasted a long time. So it's we were lucky to to continue to be able to do this and travel a bit. And I got to play with Johnny Cam and continue to play with Alex. Did it feel like uh, vindication to play to appreciative rooms who were excited to see Big Star? I it felt good. I don't know that I ever thought in terms of vindication and, you know, to kind of see, I knew I was right. I was just grateful that it was happening. You know, I'd love to play and, 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 and I'd love to, to uh, that whole engagement and uh, in the places that's kind of taken me around the world, really playing music. So uh, I think one of the comments in uh, the documentary is, one of the beautiful things about recorded music is that uh, it can be discovered at any time. And uh, it's just such an unbelievable gift that, that the band gave us. It was a gift that, that audiences give us and, uh, and the people that kind of helped us along the way. It, uh, Chris Damey and uh, Pat Sansone and, and the, yeah. the Big Star Third Live folks, Skyler and Brett and Django and... Um, it just, uh, we're lucky that we all love to play this music and we love playing it together. Does Pat Sansone play on uh, those Pretty Wrongs record, the new one? He does, yeah. He, he plays the Moog uh, part on, on uh, Always the Rainbow that's, that's brilliant. And then uh, the Mellotron part on Scream that's also brilliant. That gives it, I don't know, it it. it Gives it a little extra mystery or his Mellotron part. I told Pat that it's like blood rushing through your veins when you're scared. Uh, so it adds that bit to, to scream. Uh, yeah. Um, brilliant. And then Chris did, you know, a string arrangements for Brother, My Brother and, and Mitch Easter played Glockenspiel on uh, Paper Cup. So, yeah, lucky to have those three guys. And Mitch Easter, you know, of course, is part of Big Star's Third Live and kind of the larger version of playing Big Star's music. This unbelievable uh, family tree of R.E.M., Wilco, D.B.'s, Big Star. It's just, uh, it's really, you're, you're, a, you're an interesting nexus in all of this. You know, it, it, this may sound like a weird analogy, but when I was a kid, I hitchhiked a lot. And so I made it a point to try to meet as many people as I could. So when I was out hitchhiking, I would have a better chance of knowing somebody that would come along and stop and pick me up and give me a ride. 
and that's that's what this whole world of music has been. And my work here at Art really it just it just uh, making friends. Some people call it networking, but for me, it's just you know making friends. Uh, so I, I that's what I do, and um, that's a great analogy. I think it's it's has it has me thinking. That's for sure. He's the nicest guy I've met in rock and roll. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't th- thank you. Guys. Sweetheart, well, man. Same to you. Same to you. We always start, we all start as fans of music. So I have to ask a couple old school Jody questions. So what was the first concert you went to? You bought a ticket as a fan that you were just pumped to go see. What was, what was that show in, in your life? It was probably the Rolling Stones and, and uh, could have been early 66 or 65 my brother and i went to see them and that was that was thrilling and then maybe the next would have been the beatles in august 19th of 1966 and uh well my brother and i snuck it backstage at the beatles show and uh, well the way same way we did with the rolling stones but we didn't get caught with the rolling stones and we got caught at the beatles and and uh, you know lennon had made the comment that that people just the haters loved to hate and was completely taken just in the wrong way. But so I think the police, there was a heightened concern about safety and, mm-hmm. you know, the Ku Klux Klan were stationed outside of the Coliseum saying what bad guys the, uh, the Beatles were. And as if there's some really good Christian organization. Um, but, and I don't, yeah. So it, it but, my brother got caught and he turned me in because he thought they had police dogs out. And he thought, you know, I might encounter a dog and get hurt. And the Memphis Police Department were, God, I was 13 or 12 or 13 and Jimmy was 15. It's not like we were hardened criminals. And, right. No kidding. Uh, but that's the way we were treated. It was, so I did, I'm making a short story long. They, they took our tickets away from us. And my younger brother, David, who was like eight years old, went to see the Beatles. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I'm sorry that's not funny, but no, it's funny. But, wow. Yeah, son of a gun. And you still haven't gotten over that. I understand. <laughs> no, I'd still no. be pissed. Yeah. Yeah. Was that Mid South Coliseum? It was Mid South Coliseum. Yeah. Okay. Tickets were five dollars and fifty cents. You saw it, the Stones, but not the Beatles. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't see them, but uh, I don't know who I saw. I went to see. I actually took a date to see Three Dog Night, so that was probably high school. Uh, and I, God, I love their drummer. Wow. Oh, Floyd Sneed. Floyd was ooh, great, yeah. man. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There, there were. I guess there were other things, but uh, those were the standouts. You know, I, I went to see Hendrix. I saw the Who do Tommy at the auditorium here in Memphis. That was mind blowing. Well, uh, then they, you know, a bunch of kind of shows that did, would involve three or four bands. Uh, Mountain for one. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, Hendrix and I don't know, school. Bowie, I saw. You know, Mata Hoople along the way. Not definitely by a long shot, the first concerts. But it was good. I, I was born at a really good time. Yes, you were. Yeah, no Absolutely. question. So Big Star Third, are there plans for more of those or more of the you guys doing the number one record or coming up this year? What's coming up the rest of the year? Well, uh, the, the quintet, Pat Sansone, Chris, Stamey, and, and uh, Jan, John Allen, Mike Mills, and myself are going to Spain to do four dates in November. And primarily centered around number one record, I think, just to kind of keep it simple. Although it's it's really closer to Radio City coming out. And, uh, mm. But, um, you know, we'll have a couple of days to rehearse, so I think we'll center on the number one record. But we... You know, we included a lot of uh, Radio City songs to Life is White, which I'd love to do. So, yeah, we have uh, four more dates of that scheduled in November. But it's going to be a busy year. Luther and I go to Australia in August and England in September and then nice. uh, Spain in uh, November for the big star stuff. It's busy for me. Dane. Dane is really, really, really busy playing. So 
He's a machine. He's a machine. We know until I mean, the end of June. Yep. It's just nice to have a, a chance to breathe here for a second. But well, you're going to have to keep us all posted, Jody, because we want to. You know, if you in your duo form for those pretty wrongs or one of the big star things, I'd be glad to travel to see it. Not to Spain, probably, but uh, <laughs> yeah. somewhere, somewhere within driving distance. You let us know, man, and I'm pretty sure all three of us would be there. So. That's cool. Thank you. I will I'll definitely do that. Definitely stay in touch. And we're going to write a song together. Okay. I think we need to. I'll send you a start or you can send me one. So we'll, we'll keep that in mind. Yeah. It'll be fun. Two drummers writing with each other. It's like a dream come true. I don't know about two drum kits. I think I'll let you play drums. But, uh... Well, I'll do a version and you'll play drums on it. And then on your, if it, if the song works out, then I can play drums on your version. We'll do it like that, maybe or something, something weird. You could start the song, and I could finish it. That Nobody's would be cool. Done that before, yeah. You're on. That's what we'll do. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> Deal. Song is born. Thank you for the time. It was great to connect. That was, that was fun. Thanks, Jody. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.